0: Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute, and today we have Trina Taderos with us, HRI's Regulatory Center Leader. Hi, Trina.
1: Hi, Ben. Great to be here.
0: Well, great to have you again, and we got a lot to cover today, but a couple of points for history. We have had an election this week and an election during a pandemic. What can we say about elections during a pandemic? It's not the first one, right?
1: No. I think one of the most interesting things about the pandemic, there are many interesting things, but one of them is that there are so many echoes of 1918, including the fact that there was an election in November of 1918. And if you look at headlines in newspapers at the time, they really sound a lot like headlines today. I'm looking at one from November 1918 that says, voting safe, if you wear your mask. Of course, we know that they were in the midst of a very serious, deadly influenza pandemic in November of 1918. So, yeah, this is uh, what we're seeing today, uh, what we saw this week with folks going to the polls in masks. That's really what it looked like back in 1918, too.
0: Well, besides the history of the past, we do have some things going on today. And one of the big questions that's been out there is around the interplay between economic activity, the pandemic, and government restrictions and how those are connected or maybe not connected. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the new things we're seeing regarding those interactions?
1: So this is sort of a, an age-old question, right? Do you close down businesses to address the pandemic or do you let things stay open let businesses stay open you know like I said talking about the 1918 pandemic and if you look at the cholera pandemics of the 19th century in the United States these were questions that officials were wrestling with then and there was a tug and a and a push depending you know on on what your perspective was in each of those instances too so this this is a this is an old question one of the things that we're seeing right now is across Europe and across the United States, are government officials making different decisions about what to do amidst this big fall and winter surge in infections. And you see in Europe, there are decisions to return to pretty restrictive stay-at-home type orders. And you see some of the sort of walking back in the United States in some communities, and you see some communities where that's not happening. And so one of the things that we are watching is whether the increasing outbreaks will lead to decrease economic activity, no matter what you do from the government standpoint. And what we're seeing is evidence that outbreaks cause individuals to make decisions that lead to less economic activity no matter what. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters whether there's a stay-at-home order, but even if you don't have those orders in place, and even if you do not increase restrictions, people start to make decisions based on what they're seeing in their community that dampens economic activity anyway. And so I'm looking at Google mobility data, and what you can see if you look at what, you know, people out and about, how much they're out and about in, say, Wisconsin, Utah, South Dakota, and North Dakota, all states that have quite severe outbreaks going right now and you can see that it has started to fall off in each of these states and A state like South Dakota has not imposed a lot of new restrictions, and yet people in South Dakota are moving around and doing less. And that is because they are making individual decisions about what's safe to do and what's safe not to do. And so maybe folks are deciding to go to the grocery store once a week instead of three times a week, or maybe going twice a week instead of three times a week. And you see that fall off happening regardless of what their government officials are deciding to
0: do. Well, I love that phrase. You said, what's safe to do, what's not safe to do. Let's keep that in mind as we go to our next topic, which is around what we can be doing as individuals and what choices we should make. And I think you picked up on a really interesting conversation from some top medical experts around the use of mask versus social distancing versus a vaccine. Could you read us into that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this really, I think, encapsulates some of the the questions about what, what a vaccine can do. And there's been a good number of stories out by the media recently say, kind of calling into question whether Americans are expecting too much from a vaccine. Kaiser Health News had a good report on this last week. And I think this is something that public health experts are highlighting more and more is that some Americans are sort of expecting that once the vaccine's out, you know, sort of we're all done and so Dr. Eric Topol, who is well known and and is an expert on many different things, including design of clinical trials and things like that, had a conversation with Dr. Paul Offit, who's chief of infectious diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and is also a co-developer of a rotavirus vaccine. He asked him, essentially, if you could pick a mask, social distancing of six feet, or a vaccine that is 75% effective, which would you choose to protect yourself? And this is what Paul Offit said. So keep in mind, this is someone who knows a lot about infectious diseases and vaccines. He said, and I'm quoting from Eric Topol's podcast, I was on service last week and we take care of children who either have COVID-19 or are suspected of having COVID-19. If when I walk into the room of someone who is suspected of having COVID, you gave me three choices, I can either stand six feet away, But if I don't stand six feet away, I have to stand, say, within two feet of the person. I can wear a mask or get a vaccine that's 75% effective. Which would I choose? I choose standing six feet away first. Social distancing is the most powerful. Second, I would choose the mask. I think the mask, if worn correctly, and the right mask, and I'm not talking about an N95 respirator, but a good surgical mask that is fitting well, that's going to be more than 75% effective. The vaccine will be third, which is really the opposite of what people think, essentially, that's what Paul Offit said. I think one thing to point out is that we don't have to choose usually, right? We can social distance and wear a mask. And once a vaccine comes out, we can get the vaccine as well. And that will give us quite powerful protection, all three. I think one thing that public health experts like Dr. Offit and Dr. Topol and others are saying is once the vaccine comes out, we probably will not have a sudden switch to throwing away our masks, closing up to each other once again, right away, that it will take time and that the vaccine will just help build protection, make us all safer. But it is not like a light switch. I think Dr. Fauci from the NIH made that analogy that the vaccine won't be like a light switch where we just sort of turn off the pandemic and we all go back to our pre-pandemic lives.
0: Well, what about those that are in the hospital now? And I think there's a lot more information that you found about treatments and how the medical community has learned how to treat COVID-19 patients with a lot more efficacy. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Daniel Griffin, who is a infectious disease doctor and an expert at treating COVID-19, he was really busy in the tri-state area in the spring earlier this year treating COVID-19 patients, knows a lot about them, and gives a clinical update every week on the podcast This Week in Virology. So, he posted on Twitter a fantastic chart, and the chart is basically the combined wisdom of, of a good number of of clinicians on what they know now about the course of COVID-19, so how it goes in a patient typically, and then what the various treatments are that are available to treat patients with COVID-19 and when they are likely to be most effective. And I think the key points that struck me in looking at this is that some of the treatments that are likely to be most effective early on so i'm thinking about the monoclonal antibody treatments that we've heard a lot about and antiviral treatments those are most likely to be effective according to dr griffin's chart early in someone's infection. So we're talking about in the first two weeks after being exposed before the person gets to the hospital. And usually these treatments are given, some of these treatments don't have authorization yet from the FDA, so they're only given in clinical trials, but these treatments are being pointed at hospitalized patients. And so we have a kind of mismatch there. Similarly, Dr. Griffin points out that immune modulators and anticoagulants are useful before someone gets to the hospital. But again, these are treatments that are often given to folks in the hospital. And so we have this situation, I think, and clinicians are going to be learning to pivot on this kind of thing where the most effective treatments are often given later than ideal. So this is something that I think will be eventually sorted out as we get more more information from randomized clinical trials, and we'll learn more about when is the right time to give the patient which treatment and when it will be most effective But I think that it's important to note that some of the treatments that we have pointed at hospitalized patients most likely are more effective well before the person gets to the hospital. And so we'll see, you know, how maybe that changes over time as we learn more and and get more data and the treatments are more available to more patients
0: sticking to our theme of treatments trina let's talk a little bit about therapeutics i know from time to time we give a science for non-science majors update on what's happening with vaccines and therapeutics but today i think you've got a little bit more on what are some of the new therapeutics that are out and what we're seeing from that data
1: Yeah. Well, I think this is probably a good time to talk about two monoclonal antibody treatments that both recently stopped clinical trials due to futility. These were both trials that were being done in hospitalized patients. One of them, the trial's independent data monitoring committee recommended holding enrollment in hospitalized patients with high oxygen requirements and continuing enrollment in patients with low or no oxygen requirements. So the sickest patients, They said it's worth stopping the trial. In the other product, they stopped a study in hospitalized patients due to futility again. And these were both antibody treatments. And this one question would be you know, maybe these treatments are more useful earlier on in disease before someone gets to the point that they need a lot of oxygen, they're in the hospital. So, this is one of the questions. I think sometimes these news releases get out and people think, oh, these treatments aren't going to be useful in anyone. And that's not it at all. What they're saying is in this specific population, It does not look like it's useful. But there's a lot of other possibilities for both of these as well. So all is not lost, and the immunologists and infectious disease experts would say that this is not necessarily all that surprising and that it'll be interesting to see what happens for patients that are earlier on in the disease, and perhaps it will be more effective then. Both of these antibody treatments have been submitted to the FDA for an emergency use authorization. We have not, as of November 2nd, heard anything about the FDA authorizing either of these treatments. So that's still up in the air. But I think one of the questions that has been asked and has not been answered in a detailed way is once one of these is authorized or both are authorized for use in patients, how will they be distributed? Because antibody treatments are not available in in sort of enormously mass quantities. And so, especially at first, who do you send them out to? You know, how do you distribute them? And the question is how as a hospital or a or a physician, how do you decide who gets what? And so I think this is where everyone would like to see more data from randomized controlled trials. And we'll see sort of how the distribution goes once they get their authorization. The pandemic has raised a lot of questions about who gets what treatments, where they are sent. And it's raised a lot of questions about things like insurance and what the impacts of the economic calamity have been on people's coverage. And there is looming in the spring, or at least early-ish next year, the question of what might happen with the Affordable Care Act, because the Supreme Court is taking up the question once more of the constitutionality of the ACA, which was passed 10 years ago under the Obama administration. So Ben, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the things that we know. HRI, we, we modeled the impact of several different scenarios of the repeal and replace efforts in 2017 of the ACA. And so we actually kind of have a good idea of what the impact might be of a full strikedown of the ACA. I don't know if you want to walk through some of our thinking on that.
0: Yeah, that's right, Trina. And in fact, it was in 2017 when we were doing some of that modeling. And this is really a big question for consumers, for states, for employers and businesses. What is going to happen with that Supreme Court decision? And ultimately, as you mentioned, you know, if the ACA is struck down or has to be heavily changed quickly, what does that look like? Well, here's what we learned from our modeling a few years ago. If you look at kind of what we call the repeal, a repeal of the ACA. Scenario: We'd be projecting about 32 million people would be uninsured by 2025, and that would be broken up by about 20 million people, almost 20 million losing their insurance through Medicaid, and then about 23 losing their insurance in you know the individual market or what you know, is often called the health insurance exchanges. Now, some we were also projecting that some people would gain in insurance through their employer. And and of course, the way that works is if you lose your insurance in another way, you're you're very incentivized to find insurance. And so there might be people who get a job or get on their spouse's or or, or partner's plan through their employer if they lose insurance in in a different way. But tremendous effects, especially during the time of a pandemic, when people, as you mentioned, Trina, are very concerned about who's paying for their treatments, how much is it going to cost them, they're uncertain about, their jobs. And the one thing we do know is the ACA does provide a lot of insurance because one of its main tenets was expanding Medicaid and uh, creating these health insurance exchanges.
1: And Ben, I think one of the things that we found when we looked at the impacts on different Parts of the healthcare industry is that providers would be the most negatively impacted amongst them. So, providers and then payers, and then the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry. And I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it doesn't affect all of the industry equally. And certainly the providers are really the first to feel it. And the reason why is because there's not much of a lag there. I mean, either you're insured or you're not insured. And once you move into uninsured status, when you do show up in a hospital emergency room, it's often what's called in the industry as bad debt. It's someone who needs care, but there's really nothing to pay for that care. There's no insurance plan to pay for it. And often those expenses are going to be more than an individual or a family could pay for if they don't have insurance. So providers are certainly affected by this mostly, but payers are as well. You know, one of the things that's that's actually happened since we did our modeling, Trina, back in 2017, is that payers have really built a lot of products around these health insurance exchanges and many insurance companies that were not providing health insurance exchange plans are now providing them. So for that to go away, that's obviously a piece of their business and it's the same thing for Medicaid. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of Medicaid is actually implemented through private companies through these Medicaid managed care plans and so they would lose business as well. Even pharmaceutical and life sciences companies while again maybe not a Affected immediately, there would be some effects with them as people without insurance are obviously going to have a harder time paying for drugs and things of that nature. And so yes, I mean, you can kind of just go through the cascade that way. And even if you look at providers, they're not all created equal. Certainly safety net providers, those in rural areas and underserved areas may be hit even more acutely through those changes.
1: I think also it's not that every state would be impacted the same either, that it's really a patchwork of effects on some states. Some states would get it, you know, would have a huge spike in the uninsured rate and some would have much less. Can you talk a little bit about that, that even where you are located makes a big difference?
0: Well, I think anytime we're dealing with something like the Medicaid program, that, that you know, that's a very state-by-state state insurance program. And so each state has a lot of different requirements set up in terms of, you know, who's covered, how they're covered to what extent. We have states that did expand Medicaid under the ACA, and we have 12 states right now that have not. So if the ACA um, is struck down, the states that didn't expand Medicaid will actually have fewer people that would lose Medicaid because they weren't on it in the first place. So that's why, you know, whenever you see modeling around the ACA repeal and Medicaid specifically, you really have to get down to the state level to understand what the effects are going to be. It's similar, but not quite the same with the health insurance exchanges. The health insurance exchanges, different states have made different efforts in terms of insuring people through those. So you still get some state-by-state differences in those exchanges. And so, of course, the more successful a state was in terms of signing up people in those health insurance exchanges, the more people they would lose to uninsurance if the ACA is struck down. So I think either way, whether it's through Medicaid or through the exchanges, if the ACA is struck down, we can expect very much a state-by-state effect that will not be equal throughout the country. Well, let me do this, though. Those were great questions, and it was good to talk a little bit about what may happen under the ACA in the spring, Trina. Well, let's go ahead and wrap, and I will say we covered a lot of really interesting things today. One, an election, and you mentioned a, a bit about 1918 and the fact that that this is not the first time we've had an election during a pandemic. You walked us through some of the interplays around government restrictions and economic activity, the interplays between masks and social distancing and vaccines, and what we're doing in terms of treatments for people in hospitals and before they get to hospitals and the effectiveness of those, and then of course, what's happening with therapeutics. And then you and I ended it with a bit on what may happen in terms of the ACA next year and into the spring. So. For all of that information, Trina, I want to thank you.
1: You're welcome. Great to be here again.
0: And for our listeners, if you want to drill down on anything we've been talking about, please see us at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And thank you for joining us with Next in Health.
1: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved.